0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Sean Shea in the United States about the medical interest model. Sean is a psychiatrist and is the Director of Training Institute for Suicide Assessment and Clinical Interviewing, also known as TESA. His website is suicideassessment.com. He's the author of numerous articles and seven books. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Uh,
1: Thank you very much, Louise. It's an honor to be here, um, and um, uh, I'm just very excited.
0: So we're talking about the medical interest model, which from now on I'll refer to as MIM. So can you tell us exactly what this is?
1: Yeah, the the MIM uh, is an interviewing strategy set of interviewing techniques. There's probably almost a 100 different interviewing techniques that are described in the model uh, that is based to be a prototypic shared decision-making model for how we talk to our patients about medications. And it's uh, not about psychiatric medications, it's about all medications. So it's um, to be used for training medical and nursing students and uh, clinical pharmacy students. Um, How do you go about actually talking uh, with patients about medications from congestive heart failure and diabetes uh, to things like um, hypercholesterolemia and high blood pressure to AIDS and cancer? And, of course, obviously it can be used with psychiatric illnesses as well. Um, One of the things that the uh, MIM um, really tries to do is recognizing that When we first talk with a patient about medications, often after we do our first initial consultation, it's expected, I would assume, uh, in New Zealand it is in the U.S., that you're going to start talking collaboratively about treatment. So even in that first meeting, you're probably going to be mentioning medications as potential interventions or perhaps a complementary or alternative uh, approach as well. But the bottom line of that is, in that moment of the interview, that initial encounter, I think something really wonderful but very and also very important happens, which is that's the first time that patient really gets to see you in action. What I mean by that is it's the first time you're doing shared decision-making. So they're going to get a read on whether they think you're a pill pusher or not, whether you're somebody really listens to them about what they want or you don't. Um, do you ask them whether they're interested in other types of alternative approaches or not? Um, do you look concerned about them if they have concerns about medications? We would argue that what goes on in those minutes in that initial consultation about medications is the microcosm of what we call the therapeutic alliance itself. We actually believe that there's a thing called the medication alliance, which is how people talk to patients about medications and how patients interpret and feel about that particular clinician and their approach to medications. We think from that, often the entire therapeutic alliance will start to evolve. In fact, if the patient doesn't like what we're doing in talking with them about medications, it could very well be the last time you see that patient. Also, the likelihood that they're gonna be interested or vested in taking medications that you're prescribing when they don't like you and they think you're pushing a pill on them, um, I think drops precipitously. Uh, If the client, I mean, if the provider doesn't really understand and have a sophisticated approach to talking to people about medications, this model provides that approach. By the way, I should add, uh, you know, both the bulk and the model itself, uh, hopefully, and certainly that's the feedback we've gotten, um, uh, is um, uh, something that I think truly experienced clinicians also really value. Uh, I think in the 101 techniques, you're going to find some techniques uh, that you probably haven't used. Because the other thing I forgot to mention that's uh, special about the model, and very different about the the model than uh, some other approaches, which is that this model was built by listening and talking with uh, people who prescribe medications, uh, whether they be in primary care settings or mental health settings, uh, from actual prescribers to also people who follow people for medications, such as case managers and nurse clinicians, et cetera. And the bottom line um, uh, of that is, is that in those uh, workshops that I did, I would get all sorts of suggestions from primary care clinicians. You know, I might posit, well, here's a situation. What types of questions do you use? Or what do you say to people that gets them vested Uh, in their medications for diabetes, uh, or for congestive heart failure. Um, And uh, what the book is, and what the model is, is really sort of me funneling the best suggestions I've gotten from people in the trenches who say, this works. Um, And then from those ideas, we went on to build the actual sort of uh, framework uh, for the model. Um, And the model covers everything about Uh, how to talk with people about medications, which, by the way, is much more than just motivation. Uh, Motivation is very important, but there's also, and we'll talk about that in in this talk for sure, uh, and we have a whole motivational model called the choice triad, but I just want to add something that when we're talking and forging this medication alliance with our patients, it's not just that we talk to them about whether they're motivated for medications. There's all sorts of other things we talk. We uh, introduce our own personal philosophies about medication. That's very important to patients. Um, we address issues about side effects, and we find out how to uncover side effects um, and help people to feel comfortable to share them. Um, we look at cross-cultural issues that could impact. Those are really quite extraordinary, uh, ranging from the color of a pill uh, to what happens um with people determining on how medications are given to them, that can vary from culture to culture. And also, who talks, for instance, a medical student um, is going to obviously be recommending to a large number of patients over the course of their careers uh, a medication where one of the side effects is death. Well, who teaches a medical student or a nursing student how to suggest a medication where a side effect is death? Well, Well, not too many people do. Uh, We do. And the model directly approaches questions. Anything you can think of that a student is actually going to encounter in a real, everyday, hectic clinic, uh, the medication interest model tries to provide concrete examples of how to transform those difficult moments.
0: I'm interested in how you do that, Sean, actually. Can you give us an example of one of the principles that would be useful in a general practice setting?
1: Um, yeah, you know, uh, I should mention one other thing before I do that, though, which is that one of the things that's unique about this model is that it was born out of the out of the field of clinical interviewing, and in clinical interviewing and medical interviewing, there's a transformation, hopefully occurring. Hopefully, we're playing a little bit of a role in that, which is interviewing. In the past, at least when I was being trained, uh, was frequently done by uh, teaching principals. You you might turn to somebody and say, when you first meet them, use a lot of open ended questions. Or you might say, be sure to make a good empathic uh, bond with the patient before you go deeply uh, uh, into your explorations. These are all great principles. Uh, But the problem, and principles give you flexibility, they can get a student excited, Uh, they can give you an idea of when to do certain things. But the problem with principles is, they do not tell the student what to say. They just simply say, you want to bond with this person. Well, if they knew how to bond with the person in the first place, they probably don't even need to hear about the principle. So what we've learned is that it's not good enough to just teach principles. Any given principle, there might be a large number, 2, 5, 10, 20, different techniques that allow you to employ that principle with a particular patient. Uh, and those techniques, and what we mean by an interviewing technique is literally you you spell out what are the exact words and then you give a name to the technique and the advantage of this is that if you spell it out for the student they get something to tag onto this thing they can say oh yeah okay i get what words to use and if you give it a name it's almost like creating for a surgeon a set of different scalpel blades you know an 8 blade or a 9 blade or a 2 blade each of those blades does something different and works better with one type of client or patient than another blade. And the surgeons are intentionally making decisions. If the surgeon says, I want an eight blade, she doesn't want a nine blade because the eight blade does something different than the nine blade. So I mention that because when we say, what are the techniques of the MIM, Well, there's 101 of these actual techniques, and there's going to be many more because people generate them. But I'm hoping some of your uh, viewers will email me. Uh, with ideas and techniques that they have found useful uh, in their everyday practices. But here's an example. Um, I said that in the uh, first meeting, uh, the first consultation you do with a patient, which if it's not done well, it's the last meeting you're having with the patient. Um, so how do we make sure it's not the last meeting uh, of the patient? Well, there's a variety of different techniques. By the way, I do personally believe that in a first consultation like that, it's really useful to share with the patient what your personal philosophy is about medications. Um, But at this point, we don't have a lot of time to go into various different things. But I'm just saying that's important to do. But I want to show you a technique uh, and a principle. Here's a principle to take and use in your first consultations, which is that when people come to see us for the first time, they've often, especially if they're elderly, um, but also with younger patients, I mean, they've been around the block. They have seen a lot of physicians, a lot of nurses, a lot of clinical pharmacists. And they enter that office for that first consultation with very different opinions about what they are expecting to meet in us. And some of those opinions aren't so good. Um, they've had pretty bad experiences with other physicians or nurses. Uh, they have biases that the media might be giving them about what we're doing or not doing. Um, we like to say that that baggage that they come in, with, their beliefs about the physician, the prescriber, whoever might be prescribing, could be a nurse clinician, could be a clinical pharmacist, um, but whoever it is, um, they have biases about who they think this person is and what they think this person is about. Um, we call that um, the medication passport because they have biases about meds as well. And the principle to take from this is, is that in that first consultation, Although it'll take a couple of minutes to do it, but they're invaluable minutes. Um, I want to emphasize one thing about the medication interest model, which is remembering it takes time to talk to people about some of this material, but it is built into very small bits, you know, of 101 techniques. You might personally only use five of them in your career, and you might only use with one patient one of them in that particular setting. Um, and that's one of the things that makes it very valuable because just a single technique can be put to use. Uh, with a particular client. But with the medication, pa- we call it the medication passport. Um, you want to find out what this person feels about medications, especially if you might be prescribing in that particular initial consultation itself. So one of the things is, is the patient's very definite beliefs about whether they are sensitive to medications or not. And obviously, if a patient believes they are extremely sensitive to medications, they have a major fear of us. You're going to over-medicate me like everybody else has done. Um, I'd like to know about that fear before I do any prescribing. Um, So the principle is they have fears and biases. We call that the passport uncovered. Here's a technique. We call it the medication sensitivity inquiry. So uh, I might do this uh, in initial consultation in a a GP uh, type of setting uh, when I've done the uh, medication history of the patient for the first time. At the end of that medication history, uh, I might turn to the patient and say, you know, I- I'm curious, Mrs. Adams, um, but do you think that you're particularly sensitive to medications? First of all, the patient can be very, very impressed that you're asking them that question, if they indeed someone who feels they are sensitive. Um, and the patient said, oh, yeah, I'm really sensitive to medications. Um, you know, physicians are often giving me too much medications. The next thing to ask then uh, notice, though, how concrete that is, the medication sensitivity inquiry. It is simple. You just simply ask, do you think you're particularly sensitive to medications? Um, if the patient tells you that they're very sensitive, the next thing to do is just simply it makes common sense. It's, oh, well, what have you discovered that makes you feel that you're sensitive to medications? Now, here's a really interesting thing that will unfold. Some of these people who feel that they are extremely sensitive to medications are genuinely oversensitive to medications. I mean, livers handle and metabolize stuff differently, uh, you know, upon genetics. But the bottom line is so you will find some people who literally are overly sensitive to medications. On the other hand, you may find some of your patients, as they describe what happened, you're sitting there and going, well, those are just common side effects that everybody gets. Uh, you know, some of these uh, with medications, the rare medication, you don't get some side effect. I used to. Uh, early in my career, when I would figure out that, you know, they're really not that sensitive, I'd say something to my patients like this. I'd go, Well, I really have some good news, you know, Mrs. Thompson, which is, you know, I really don't think you're particularly sensitive to medications. You're getting pretty common side effects. And the good news is, it means we're going to be able to try some different medications, and I think we'll find one that will be effective. Well, I quickly learned not to do that. Because if you think about what I just did, I asked the patient, Are you sensitive to medications? He or she said, I am. And I just told them, I don't believe you. Not a good start <laughs> with a patient. So in any case, the first, another principle to take, even if you think that the patient is not particularly sensitive, but they think they are, for all intents and purposes, they are as far as whether they're going to take a medication. What you believe is irrelevant. Uh, what they believe determines whether they're sensitive to the, you know, whether they want to take the medication. Or not. So once you got the medication sensitivity uh, inquiry done and the person said, Yeah, yeah, I'm really sensitive to meds. Okay, you just positive that in the back of your head. Now you're at the end of the consultation. And you're starting to talk about medications and you have uh, maybe it's a medication for uh, hypertension and the uh, a patient, you know, seems sort of interested in it or whatever. Uh, you did describe side effects carefully for them, and you could tell there were some hesitancies. And you start to uh, either type up if it's an electronic prescription or if you're still using uh, uh, handwritten prescriptions. But you do a very specific thing. Halfway through typing it up or halfway through writing the script out, you literally purposely stop, turn and make good eye contact with the patient and say, you know what, Mrs. Thompson, you know, if it's okay with you, I'd like to start this medication at roughly half the recommended starting dose. So much less than a typical person would get when they're starting the med. And I'm doing that because of your concerns and history of the sensitivity you've been describing to me. I should alert you that by doing that, you might not get any impact from this uh, medication on your blood pressure at all for a while. Um, But I just think it's a good way to go. We should start very, very low with you. Let your body adapt to this thing, and then we can see if we can raise the dose appropriately for you. How's that sound to you? Is that okay? Well, this is a beautiful gambit. Um, I've actually had patients who had told me that they were very sensitive to meds and very worried about having too many um, actually turn to me and say, well, well, you might want to start it where you usually started because I am in a lot of pain. Um, but the bottom line is we call that technique the mini-dose recommendation. It's obviously paired with a medication sensitivity inquiry. If you discover they're sensitive, then at the end, you the consult, and you're writing the script or typing up. You do exactly what I just said. Pause, make good eye contact, and say that. I've got to tell you, if you think about it, that is a person who has felt that most clinicians, perhaps all, have over-medicated. And uh, they go home, and their, um, their husband's there, or their wife's there, and uh, the uh, partner says, uh, what do you think of Dr. Shea? Tell you what she's going to say. She's going to say, That was the first damn physician that ever listened. And I'm telling you, they'll be back. So, those techniques, that tandem technique, very teachable to a, uh, a medical or nursing student. Hopefully, also valuable uh, in more experienced clinicians. Um, but anyway, that's a nice example of a principle. Patients come in with biases, explore them before you first prescribe then two specific interviewing techniques that came out.
0: The choice triad, it's an important principle. Tell us about this.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, the choice triad is a part of the model that deals with motivation itself. Um, and one of the uh, elements of this is it has its own specific sort of model for how people become motivated. Um, Interestingly, the, the models, all the, the choice triad itself and all the interviewing techniques about medications and how you motivate people to be interested in medications, they're actually uh, completely applicable to other things. So uh, if you're a surgeon, the choice triad is completely applicable uh, to talking to people about surgery. If you're a physical therapist uh, or a physiatrist, these are completely Uh, adaptable and flexibly utilized, but but we're focusing in the medication interest model on it. So what's the choice triad? Well, first of all, we don't really believe in general that people are non-adherent or non-compliant if what's meant by those words, and those words certainly, they hint that this is what they mean. There's a tone to those words, that the patient is the problem. You know, the patient just isn't going to take the meds the way they're supposed to take the medications. Um, I think, I probably more, uh, in my field of psychiatry, I probably run into, um, you know, some people with personality structures that are, are sort of oppositional about meds. But by far and away, I believe the vast majority of people, even in my field of psychiatry, um, they do not not take medications because they're being resistant or oppositional they have a really good reason, a totally logical reason, why they do not want to take this medication, whether it's for hypertension, hyperglycemia, diabetes, or depression, or they don't want to take the the dose you're giving. And what we think is that there's three beliefs that a person must have if they're really going to be interested and motivated. By the way, we've replaced the terms adherence and compliance with medication interest. Um, the main thing that, the bottom line is, is this person interested in taking this medication? It's about choice. Um, a second thing is whether, if they make the choice they want it, there's all sorts of things we can do to help them to follow through, but the medication interest model really focuses on that first step. They've got to want to take it. Um, what are the three beliefs? Well, I, I'd have to believe that there's something uh, really wrong with me, uh, that I actually want you, my physician uh, or nurse, to help me with. Um, why would I take a medication if I didn't think there was something wrong with it? Um, That doesn't make any sense. Okay. The second thing is I'd have to believe that a medication is a a really reasonable, and if you're offering me to use the medication instead of anything else, that I'd have to agree with you that it's the the best possible, but certainly a reasonable possibility to get help with what I want help. If I didn't believe that, why would I? I could think there's something wrong. If I don't think what you're offering is going to help me, I'm not going to take it. But even if you believe the first two steps of the choice triad, I think there's something wrong with me. I want help with it. I actually believe a medication is is a potential way of getting me help. You'd have to believe the third step of the triad, which is I would personally have to believe that the pros of taking this medication outweighed its cons. What person in any logical universe would take a medication that they thought the cons Outweigh the pros. It's going to hurt them more than help them. I would argue that you have to believe all three of those things in order to be on board and heavily vested and interested in taking the medication. You know, a really interesting thing is, as I said earlier, uh, we did a large number of workshops and trainings, or I've done a large number of workshops and trainings uh, on the men. And uh, whether I've got an audience of mental health professionals or whether I've got an audience of primary care clinicians, or a lot of them are also mixed audiences as well. Um, actually, when I got to the choice triad, what I would do, uh, Louise, is, and I still do this when I give this talk is I turn to the audience uh, and I'll say something like this. I'll say, you know, we want to find out why people are motivated or not motivated to take a medication. i turn to this group of physicians and nurses and I'll say, so I want you, the beauty of this is we don't have to speculate because we have a room full of patients here. Every single one of us has taken a medication. Some of us are, are, are agreeing to let our children be on medications for various things. So we all have to arrive, we know, we're patients. Let's find out how a patient does it. So I literally turn to the audience and I say, how do you personally decide to take a medication? And I said, don't think about any patients. And when you answer uh, the question, use the first uh, person from Say, I decide to take a medication. And you know what? In very literally, this is never not um, the um, those three steps of the choice triad are mentioned by these uh, physicians and nurses because this is just logical. Uh, this is what people have. So what we think is is that when people don't take a medication or they lower the dose, they don't believe one of the steps. And a real thing that can help uh, uh, as a principle what we're training our medical or nursing students and what I try to, to communicate is that when you're in that room and you're either in your initial consult, but actually a lot of this has to deal with what happens in follow-up visits, consciously be asking yourself, where is this person at these three steps? And one of the things that I find that a lot of people do that's a problem is they try to convince people of the pros and versus the cons when the person doesn't really think there's something that wrong with them to begin with. If the first two steps are not secured in the choice triad, you might as well not be talking about the third step. But what happens with that is, as to the patient, it feels like they're being harped on. Uh, they're being told, you know, if you don't take this antihypertensive, you're going to have a struggle. I'm you that, you need to start taking it. <laughs> well, they, they either don't get how dangerous it is, or they don't really believe the medication is going to prevent them from having that dangerous thing. Or then they might believe the pros to, but uh, you know, are outweighed by the cons. So what we're training people to do in the MIM, there's actually questions you can ask for each of the steps. And then there's very specific things that you can do to help tap the motivation of the patient. The other reason it's so important to find the patient's beliefs about this is I remain convinced, you know, I've been in practice what I don't Graduate medical school, what, 1980s, sort of scary. Um, but it, I've been in practice a long time. Um, obviously, there's two experts in the room. You know, I would like to view myself as an expert about, you no know, medications and, and the dynamics of how they're metabolized, et cetera, et cetera. But the other expert is clearly the patient. And the patient is clearly the only expert in that room about what they are feeling when they're on this medication, what they feel about taking this medication. And... Um, these two experts can help each other, and I am very dependent. My, my goal is to help this person to come with the best choice that fits them and their cultural belief system and their beliefs about wellness, health, and disease. Um, and I'm counting on them to let me know what's going on. Um, so one of the beauties of the MIM is, is that there's, it's not just turning to a medical student and saying uh, you ought to uh, make sure you understand what your patient's belief sets are about meds. It's literally saying, here's the principle, but here is a technique, and here is a different technique that might work better with a different patient, uh, and here is a third technique that accomplish the techniques can be taught. And you can take a group of medical students, um, take 15 of the techniques from the men. You know, the, the book itself was literally built to be used as a text for training clinicians on how to talk with patients about medications. By the way, I just want to emphasize something about this as far as educational training programs which is one could argue that the one of the most robust if not the most robust evidence base we have in mainstream medicine is that the number one reason that treatments fail is that people do not take medications as they are recommended it is not that you and i made a wrong diagnosis it's not that we're prescribing the wrong medication It's that people do not take the medications as they are being prescribed. Now, there's a massive database on this. I mean, I would argue it might be one of the biggest databases we have in all of medicine and nursing. And if that's what we discover, that's the number one reason for treatment failure. If you were naive to the educational system, you'd go, they must have one big course on this topic. We don't usually have any course on this topic. It's rather extraordinary if you think we view ourselves as an evidence based field. The evidence base suggests there should be a significant course on how you talk to people about medications um, because that's the name of the game. That's <laughs> whether they heal or not. So the man tries to fill that, the book tries to fill that, the model tries to fill that. Um, if you'd like, I can give you an example uh, of sort of the choice triad uh, put to the test. Uh, the patient has to believe that there's something wrong, okay? Um, It's more complex than that because actually what the patient has to believe uh, is not only that there's something wrong, but each patient has a belief set about their symptoms of what symptoms they most want uh, help with. Um, And if you can address that particular symptom picture with the person, they're going to be much more likely in that first meeting with you to trust you and to feel that you're the right match for them. So I'll just give an example with that. You know, if we look at someone with congestive heart failure, uh, it's easy to sort of assume that every patient is interpreting and responding to symptoms in the same way. So let's take relatively severe dyspnea on exertion as you're going up a flight of stairs. Um, It could be that we would think as a uh, prescriber that when first talking to the patient about this medication uh, for their CHF that we're going to start them on, we would emphasize uh, you know what, I think this can really help you to get up your flight of stairs uh, to you know, uh, your second floor. And I know that's you know, uh, a major problem uh, with congestive heart failure. Um, and we might say that would be a very good motivator. Well, uh, it depends upon who the patient is. You now, I think it was um, Sir William Osler who said, uh, he's one of my heroes, by the way, um, he said, it's much more important to know what sort of patient has a disease than to know what sort of disease. A patient has. Well, the reason for that is, is that if you want the person to do what you're recommending, they have to be comfortable with it, which means you have to know who they are. So let's just look at severe dyspnea on exertion going up a flight of stairs. Well, if I have an artist uh, who's developed CHF, he's uh, maybe a 35-year-old guy post a viral myocarditis, now he has CHF, um, he built on the second floor of his house a beautiful studio. You know, And this is how he makes his living. He put big skylights in So he, can, he believes that the only way he can paint is if he has natural light like that. And this is a guy who can literally barely get up these stairs. That's a guy that if I turn to him and I say, you know what? I'd really like to try to help you to get up to your uh, uh, studio better. I have a medication that I think could be particularly good at helping with this. That guy will be very bonded with you. I would be vested in the man. But let's take another person. They have exactly as bad of dyspnea on exertion. They, she can't get up the stairs, essentially. But you know what? She's 65 years old. The upstairs was bedrooms for her children, none of whom live there anymore. So she could care less. about whether. So that's not a main motivator for her. But you could turn to either of these patients, and you'd say something like this, you no, know, uh, Mrs. Thompson. Uh, what are some of the things about your heart condition or symptoms that uh, you would most like me to help you with today? What are some of the symptoms? And she might say, "Well, and the point here is, don't assume we know what the person wants help with. Ask." Um, she might say something like this: "She would well, yeah, I got. I'm short of breath a lot, and uh, that's a problem. But I got to tell you, and you might think this is sort of silly, Doctor Shea, but you know, one of the things I, I really." dislike the most is what my legs look like my ankles i go well what do you mean how swollen they are she goes yeah she says i have always loved shoes i've bought shoes (laughs) since i was six years old i don't even go to shoe stores anymore because i'm embarrassed by what people see uh, if they look at my legs um and that's something I'd really like help with. Well, you know what? You know, as the physician who's first going to prescribe, you know, I'm going to think some type of antidiuretic or something that's going to get rid of that fluid for this person. Um, and when you turn to the person and you say, you know, the first medication I'd like to try is something that I think would be particularly good at getting your ankles down. Um, you know, this is a person who will trust you, believe in you, and be there for the rest of her life. Um, that has a name. That is called the target symptoms question. Uh, and it's always phrased with, that, what, uh, with your particular, whatever the disease is. It could be heart disease. It could be asthma. Um, you just say uh, with whatever the disease is, what are some of the symptoms that you would most like me to help you with today? It's very personalized. That you would most like me to help you with today. Um, now, there's a second. The principle there is, People have different target symptoms they want help with, ask. So that's the principle. Now, there's a very specific technique called the target symptoms question. But here's a slightly different technique. It employs the same principle. It's called the magic pill question. It goes like this. Uh, You know, uh, Jim, uh, if I could take away, uh, if I had a magic pill, and I could take away just one of your heart symptoms today, what's the symptom, the one symptom you would want me to get rid of, that you want the pill to to get rid of. You you can see that it's different. The first question said, what are some of the symptoms? Magic pill question is asking for a single symptom. Well, you know what? These questions, if you want to get the truth from a patient about what they want uh, symptom relief with, different patients will respond differently to these two questions. Uh, As far as adults go, if you have a really anxious patient, uh, and, you know, they're always second guessing. You know, that's just the way they are in life. And you use that magic pill question, what's the one symptom you need to help you with today? They'll walk out of your office going, oh, my God, I gave Dr. Shea the wrong symptom. Uh, and they'll be fretting about that for the rest of the day. Um, that person, it's probably best to use the target symptoms question. What are some of the symptoms that you might want that pill to, uh, Or what are some of the symptoms that you might want me to help you with today? I wouldn't mention anything about a magic pill. But if I had a, um, an adult who typically uh, is not overly anxious like that, uh, you might use the magic pill question uh, because you're really going to find out what's the one thing that's really bothering them the most. But I'll tell you something else. If as a GP you're working with an 8-year-old uh, uh, and they walk into your office with their mom and they've got like six Harry Potter books with them and they're wearing a cape, oh, my gosh, they're begging you to use the magic pill question. You know, Jimmy, if I had a magic pill that could take away one of the symptoms you're having with your breathing right now, you know, like Harry Potter might have a magic pill, and I don't. But if I had one, it's the one symptom you want help. That's, ma- that's what Osler meant finding out who the person is and matching the techniques to that particular person. Um, very easily taught. I don't know if we do, I don't think we have a lot more time. One more, okay. Uh, this goes with the second step of the choice triad, which you recall is that the person feels motivated that they feel that the medication can be of value to them. Um, For some people, that has to be the motivator is symptom relief. I had a pediatrician in one of my workshops when I was talking about the second step, um, raised his hand and he goes, oh, I have a perfect example. He said, I'm a pediatrician and I specialize in childhood asthma. He said, you know, um, a lot of my kids don't want to take these asthma pills uh, at first uh, or or medications. Um, Bottom line is it's embarrassing to take pills at school. Uh, Sometimes they have to do stuff uh, as far as uh, they're uh, taking the pill in a liquid form and what that problem's going to arise, et cetera, et cetera. The bottom line is is sometimes I have trouble getting the kids. Now, he said, I've got a kid who's having severe acute asthmatic attacks. Oh, I got an man, that kid's frequently Uh, to be more vested in taking the medicine off the bat. Um, But he said, uh, if they're not having severe attacks like that, sometimes it can be really hard to get the person vested in taking the medication. So I asked them this question. I turned to them and I said, Jimmy, is there anything that your asthma uh, is doing or stopping you from doing that you really, really wish you could do? And he said, you know, one of my most common things out here is a sport he said, and so if the kid gives me a sport, i turn maybe soccer, I'll turn to them and I say, you know what, Mary, um, uh, I have a medication in mind that I think might really help to get you back out onto the field again. Um, I can't promise you that it will, but I've had really good luck with this, of getting people back involved with sports. Uh, and I was thinking maybe you and I should sort of decide that together that's going to be a goal we're going to have can we help to get you back out onto the soccer field? And this medication might be an inroad for that. Would that be a good goal for us? And do you feel comfortable with that? Um, He said, this works wondrously with kids. And notice what happened. It's called the inquiry into lost dreams. And the pediatrician turned to us and he said, you know, a lot of people are motivated with things like asthma, um, not because they want to get rid of a symptom, it's that they want back something the symptom has taken from them. He said, the inquiry into lost dreams allows the patient to discover that for themselves and to share it with you. And then you can't get a better motivator. Um, so anyway, that's what the, uh, the MIM looks like. Uh, and uh, it's something that we're very excited about. We truly believe it's a transform- it has the potential to be a transformative model. It takes medical and nursing students right from the beginning and helps them to realize that patients are not a non-adherent and non-compliant in the sense of being resistant to you. They have very good reasons why they don't want to take these medications. And uh, so when we look at that evidence base, that the reason that people who uh, treatment failures occur is because they don't take the medications, of which frequently death is one of the things that happens. We're literally saying that, that is probably happening because the patient has a logical reason that if I believed what they believed, if I believed the pros of this thing outweighed the cons, I would not take the medication. Uh, and once that sinks into a medical student or a nursing student, that the patient's decision is the same one you'd make if you believed what they believed, because it's a logical decision. It doesn't follow. They don't believe all three steps of the choice. Try it. We, the other thing we find is, um, one, we get buy into the model. But the other thing is, is that there's a change in how the, the physicians or the medical students come across to the patients. They, they literally don't feel the patient is the problem. They literally feel, let's work together and find out which step, what you don't believe. And the other thing I found over, I said I've been doing this for like three decades. The other thing I found is the reason you want to find out what the beliefs are of the patient about medications um, is they're not infrequently correct. This is the wrong medicine for them, or the side effect is too disturbing for them for them to be able to maintain it. Um, and so sometimes, uh, obviously, after I get the input from the patient, I just sit there and go, this was the wrong medicine. We should find something different for you. That side effect of a dry mouth, which you know, might not mean a lot to some people. You're a teacher. That bothers you every minute of the day during the class, or you're an actor. That's career-threatening. Um, but sometimes we can't know that unless we ask the patient first. They're the expert on their own bodies and beliefs.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Sean.
1: Oh, thanks. It's really been fun. Thanks for getting the chance.
0: All right. If you're a New Zealand uh, primary care practitioner and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources, including Sean's book, on our website. We are, you can also access other free products such as webinars and med cases. Thanks for listening today.